Clunday, Clunday, Clunday. That's right. Rick Clun starts his residency in this episode. On top of that, it is the return of Jake's take. That's right. Bassmaster videographer extraordinaire tells us the true behind the scenes of what really happened on Scott Martin's record baking breaking day on Lake Okeechobee. Both of them join me this week. Oh. I'm Bob Cobb from the Bassmaster. Welcome to Mercer. Welcome one, welcome all, friends, family, freeloaders, fishing freaks, humpers. You're all welcome here at the Awkwardly Honest Fishing Podcast that goes by my last name, which is Mercer. Welcome into the 147th edition of the Mercer Podcast, and I thank you for choosing to spend a little time with me here this week. You guys are incredible. I thank you each and every week for making this show what it is. I thank you for all the comments. I thank you for all the thumbs up. I thank you for all the reviews on all our streaming services because um, you guys have really increased that. So um, go in and, and, and say something about the show, whatever you feel. If you think this show has earned a, a time in your week, well, help us stroke the algorithm by um, giving a thumbs up leaving a comment, leaving a a review, or, hey, tell a buddy about it, and we'll keep this community growing. We have an incredible show this week, two incredible guests. But before I talk about them, I want to talk about something very serious, something that um, some of you may already know about because it's been pretty widely publicized in the fishing community, and, and that makes me proud of our community. But Miles Berghoff, who is a Bassmaster Open competitor, a professional angler, a a great human being, him and his wife, Katie, have a beautiful daughter, Riley. And last week, they found out while Miles was pre-fishing for the Okeechobee Open that they got the call that no parent wants to get. Riley has cancer. And it's a very rare cancer. And their life is drastically about to change. Like every parent, they'll stop everything they're doing just to make sure their child is safe. But when you're a professional angler, that comes with a lot of headaches. Obviously, he is a dream job. But when you're not able to do your job, things get more difficult financially. Never mind the fact that they're going to have tons and tons of bills and expenses while they work with Riley towards her recovery. And, and the good news is, I know they're seeing the fine people at St. Jude's, which are the best people around to see. And Riley's already started that process to get better. But I want this community, the community that I tell you guys how proud I am of every single week. I don't ask you to do a lot, but they have set up a GoFundMe. And I'm going to make a donation And I'd encourage all of you to make a donation. How big, how little, anything helps them. I just want this community to come together and do something really cool and support Miles and Katie Berghoff and, of course, Riley's recovery. And Miles, I'll be honest, Miles is not somebody who I know real well. I mean, he's a great human being anytime I've ever spent any time with him. But that doesn't matter. We don't have to know them well. What we do know is they're part of our world. And 
this is one of those times in life that we should all come together and help them. Just help them to make their day, their year, their troubles a little bit better. And I get it. There's a lot of people facing a lot of things. But Miles is one of ours. He's part of this sport. Let's show that family in the world how special this community is. And I'd encourage you to make a donation at their GoFundMe. As I said, I'm going to make a donation. I will put the links to it in the description, in the comments, in everything I can to make sure it's easy for you guys. If, if you can make a donation, if you can share it, if you can tell somebody about it, because uh, this, is, this is one of those situations where it's going to take a village, and I, our village is strong. So let's show that, if you're willing, if you can. Now, there's no good way to segue from that, but I always say this show is supposed to be one thing. It's supposed to be an opportunity for people to get a break from the real troubles in life. I mean, we're not, we're not doing anything serious here. We're just having conversations. And this week, we have two very, very incredible conversations. First, we're going to be joined with the return of Jake's Take. Jake LaTondre's Bassmaster Videographer Extraordinaire returns. And for those longtime viewers, you know Jake's Take. You guys have been asking for it to return. Well, finally, it will be returning to the show here this week. And uh, Jake had a very unique perspective. Jake was on the back deck of the boat with Scott Martin when he made history on Lake Okeechobee. So we are going to get the insider's behind-the-scenes skinny from Jake LaTondres. And as if that's not enough, it is Clunday. Clunday, Clunday. That's right. Rick Clund starts his podcast residency here this month. I mean, we're just calling a residency. I don't know if that's the right term or not, but that it makes sense to me. He's going to stop by once a month, every month, for his 50th season. And we're going to talk about, well, what, whatever we happen to talk about, whatever Rick wants to talk about. And it always is something that we learn from. And you may be wondering why I'm calling it Clunday, 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 because we don't have a name for this segment yet. You guys gave me some suggestions. Some of them I thought were good. None of them have been improve, approved by the Clun camp. It's a lot of Cluns. <laughs> so keep guessing at different names we can come up with. But until further ado, it's going to be Clunday, Clunday, Clunday. Because um, he, you know, he is basically the monster truck of tournament fishing. I mean, it has never... You know, think about it. I mean, he's 77 years old, and he's entering his 50th season of competition. It's an absolutely incredible, inspirational, and amazing story. And I'm thankful to have Rick Clun on this podcast. But before we do that, we're going to hook up with Jake LaTondres with Jake's Take. Reunited and it feels so good. You're supposed to hit the next. No, I don't know the next line. <laughs> I'm just dancing with you, Dave. All right. What's up? All right. What's up, dude? Oh, just happy to have you back in my life, dude. It's, it's been it's, a while. Yeah. Well, the fact that we're talking means that we're going back to work and the season has started. But uh, before we get into this season and, and what you were lucky enough to witness this past week, 
How was your off season? I, I missed you. I missed bass. I missed all of it. I miss it. I love my kids spend most of my time, uh, as a dedicated father to my children. Um, and that's good. That's the best part of the off season is all the time I get to spend with my three children. So that was cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't like it to be honest. I, I mean, I watch, I, I've joked with you about this, but I watch your children and your son doing two a days boxing. It, it, your daughters are training for anything, really everything like advanced, like you're making some superhumans there while my children get really good at video <laughs> games. Well, that's the goal. My kids are, you know, I'm just, I just want to keep them active and they're, they're athletic and I found the right coaches. I'm lucky enough to have the right coaches very close to my proximity in my residence. So you know, it, it worked out. Call well, it fate or whatever. Well, no, I think you're a good dad, dude. I think uh, it's it's awesome to see um, that all evolving. And you got to see something pretty awesome. For those of you that have never met Jake, I mean, we have, we, we I mean, the podcast continues to grow, shockingly enough. Um, but Big uh, Jake Latondres, obviously one of my good buddies, but also Bassmaster, videographer extraordinaire. And this is a segment that you're going to get used to seeing in the next little while called Jake's Take, where we kind of break down what you got to see. And normally it's just an elite series event, but man, you saw some incredible history, obviously being part of the Okeechobee tournament this past weekend. And the tournament champion was the one and only Scott Martin. And uh, guess who was on the back deck of Scott Martin's boat? Me. Uh, first of all, let me say this about, the bass bass opens they're beginning to feel to have this elite feel to them because everybody is so good now and they're so competitive and there's like 17 former Bassmaster elite anglers in the open lineup now there's like eight or nine trying to make the jump back over from major league fishing and it is and and all these young guys are just freaking killing it for various reasons, but, um, the feel at these opens now is really, really, um, is, is much bigger than it used to be in my opinion. And we cover, you know, we're covering all nine EQs elite qualifying events this year. So, you know, that, that television coverage in itself, live coverage on FS1 is huge for those guys. So anybody moving up into the opens, good luck. And, you know, it's it's a, a completely different playing field now. Yeah, and, it, and, you know, if you ask me, and I know that that decision to go to nine events to qualify was scrutinized by a bunch of people. I mean, some people on this show said they don't agree with it, and, and that's the truth on every decision. But I don't think you can argue with what we've seen happen as soon as we've seen it happen. The nine qualifiers from last year, incredibly well prepared. These guys are going to be even more prepared, not just – because of the nine events, but because of the, they'll, they'll have been on FS1. They'll have experienced what that's like. I mean, obviously Scott Martin wasn't somebody who needs to get more experience in that department. I mean, he, I think he was born with a GoPro strapped to his head. <laughs> um, but it, it's, you're seeing the sport evolve and um, it's really cool. I mean, it's, and it's cool to see guys like not just Scott Martin, Randall Tharp, you know, his first event back right back where he left things. Um, 
He was he third in that? I think he finished. Yeah, third. he finished yeah. third. Tucker Smith again. Here we go. You've got Scott Martin who won. Tucker Smith who was an Auburn University angler last year. Won three high school back to back to back national championships. He comes in second and gave everyone a run for their money. And then you've got Randall Tharp who, you know, like you said, he finished. He finished right where he left off when he left. Uh, bass you know several years ago so and then and you look down the field down the line of, of people and you know you start going through the list of names as I was following the opens and the standings from day one through day day two anticipating you know where I might who I might cover on the last day or who we were going to cover as a top 10 you know you look at these names and there are big names down way down the list and there's new names way up on the list and vice versa it's 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 i think it's incredible and it starts again it's not just the opens i mean you're talking about you go back and look at bass juniors bass nations high school tournaments college tournaments these people are taking this stuff very seriously because of the growth of the sport and the opportunities that it creates for young people to move up and people like Logan Parks and JT Tompkins and people that qualified for the elites last year through the EQs give other people an opportunity, a visual opportunity to understand if they work hard, where that can take them and what that might lead to. So, hey man, here we go, bro. This is, this is big. When, when people talk about, the longevity of the sport, the future of the sport. And I know it gets a lot more clicks to say it's doomed. I mean, that, that does seem to be the way that people, and it's just, it's how it works. But I've said this from the start in the history of mankind, youth is undefeated. I mean, that little kid that you think uh, like I could whoop your son right now, but in 10 <laughs> years time, there is no chance he's going to work. That's just how life is. And, and there has never been a, a bigger abundance of young talent and people coming up and excitement around the sport. So while a lot of people want to focus on, on things that they perceive to be negative. And one of the things you said too, because I, I think this needs to be said, you said the young guys are kicking butt and, and you did say, for several different reasons. And people will say that. But here's what I'm going to say. They're doing their freaking job. Like due diligence. Your, your job has always been to to be the best at what it takes to catch the five biggest fish. Whether somebody chooses to fish that way or not, it doesn't matter. But their job is to be the best at it. And on this particular show, also I have Rick Clun on here for his monthly visits, which is Pretty exciting to, to say the least, out, man. Um, but one of the things we talk about is he was like when flipping came, they wanted to outlaw the technique of flipping because there was just people that were fishing that particular way. It was a technique. It, they wanted to make the rod shorter. They wanted to do everything. It's that's not the tournament anglers decision. You know, their, their job, all these young guys that want to make a living at this, their job is to use it use the tools available to them and use them better than the other hundred guys, 150 guys, 225 guys in the opens. And, and that's what they're doing. Um, and, and so anyways, I, I'll get off my soapbox, but that's I, a I deep, deep hole that we, we could go down a rabbit yeah. hole that we could go down and we probably will. I mean, as the season progresses, I can absolutely see you and I talked about this yesterday, you know, 
these these young guys are are not going anywhere and they're no. only going to get better and and so you know that's a that's an abyss of a conversation that I would love to get into we obviously don't have time to today because we still got to talk about Lake Okeechobee and what happened there but that's a very fascinating concept and and you know for all those people that want to criticize it you know, you better, you better hang on. You either get off the bus or, or hang on because it's not going anywhere and it's moving fast. Let's get into it real quick though, because we it. are into it. Like but, but, but me are. and you, I mean, I'll just, we shared a conversation yesterday socially. And, and I always say we should have the same conversations we have on the phone. <laughs> That's how this started in the first place. Few, right? Few words, <laughs> a few, a few creative adjectives that we use while we're talking on the phone. Um, <laughs> But dude, it's so much, and and I like I told you, I'm on the fence, and I get hammered for that because there's part of me that loves it so much because we're learning so much, and then there's part of me that's like, it's not frog fishing and you know topwater blowups that I grew up with, but it's a lot like the camera world. When they switched to digital cameras, there was a ton of people that were like, "This is not for." I mean, you speak about it because you were I part of it. that world. I lived it. I li absolutely lived it. And I don't remember what year that was, but it was probably somewhere around 2000 and I don't know, 2008 or 2010 when digital photography really started, you know, digging its claws into the digital media world. And I remember I was the young kid. I was the you know, the Brian Evies and the Brandon Fiends and, and the Dalton Tumlins of my world back then. And I remember the old school guys. I told you my buddy, uh, Greg Child from Nat Ge National Geographic, you know, he, he talked about how digital photography would never equal film photography and color slides and the ability to adjust those, you know, uh, the, the, the light and the colors in, 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 in a lot in a dark room and now who does that anymore you know yeah. who who even do, people do that for a hobby because they want to be different they don't do it because they're trying to keep up with the joneses anymore and like you said yesterday it's the same parallel with the digital equipment world in the fishing industry and i mean to be honest with you, it goes throughout the outdoor industry, bow hunting. They have different types of sites and range finders and all kinds of stuff, trail cameras that, that shoot live photos and video clips to your phone at that moment in real time. So you know what a deer is doing. I mean, what's the difference, you know? It's just going to keep evolving. And, and that, again, I've said this a bajillion times, and I honestly believe this. The coolest thing about fishing is you do it the way you want. You can exactly. you can have just as much fun watching a float with a worm under it, and if that's your thing, cool. You If you want to fly fish, cool. You want to tie the actual bait that you catch the fish on, that's all cool. I mean, there's we should remember that, that there's the division shouldn't be in fishing. You know, because we're not we're not the problem. You know what I mean? Like I I never never look at a fly angler and be like, oh, why would you do that? Why wouldn't right. you get a bass boat? They're so much more bitching. Right. That's what that dude likes to do, or that girl likes to do, and and vice versa. Um. So, anyways, we probably upset some people, but well, 
Hey man, Scott and I had this conversation on the boat when the camera was down because he was kind enough. You know, he, he knows what sells. He knows how to sell things, right? That's what he's been doing his whole life. His dad's been doing Dude, it. He was selling that. mattresses this year on Black Friday. <laughs> it's, I've never seen it in pro fishing. In his story, he was there like, these go. are the mattresses I use at my guest house in Alabama. And I was like, good <laughs> Lord, Scott Martin knows no bounds. I mean, his Why bank not? account is wonderful, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been a fool buying my mattresses all these years. You got to have a strong back on the boat, on a boat, on a three or four day tournament anyway. Right. Rest is rest is key. But we had this conversation and he was kind enough to, he had his back monitor on his console synced up to his front transducer. And he had that thing in perspective mode in shallow water. And he, I didn't ask him to, he, he came back there. He's got these new, uh, these new mounts for his graphs that are actually really incredible. They slide back and forth and they turn, you can adjust them and they lock down. They don't go anywhere. They're really, they're really, really cool. Anyhow, you know, he, he came back there. He stopped what he was doing. He came back there and he put his, uh, his left graph in front of me on his front perspective mode and so i was able to film what was going on underwater and he would he, he was in three and a half feet of water most i would say 99 percent of the time he was in three to three and a half feet of water and he was flipping okay and fl everything he was flipping he was flipping a wacky worm on a spinning rig and he had texas rigs with worms and crawlers and all kinds of stuff on his other rods and he's flipping with his live scope on in perspective mode and I'm back there like it's blowing my mind because I'm watching these big females, you know, holding undercover and these males swimming around other males moving in them chasing them off another big female moving in. And I'm sitting there going, this is incredible. Like what we see and what, what, what we thought used to happen and what we see to what is actually happening, particularly in murky water, unlike what Drew Cook did at, at Santee Cooper, where you can see everything with your eyes anyway, you couldn't see because the water clarity wasn't there. And we're watching this. And I'm, I'm telling you, like there were times where I was just mesmerized looking through my, my eyepiece at what was going on because we're learning so much about these creatures that, millions and millions and millions of people love so much and so for that kudos to scott martin for allowing me to film what he was seeing and not hiding that there at the end he was like you know let's make sure we understand that what i'm doing is not all about this front-facing sonar okay it's not because he still his timing had to be perfect his cast had to be perfect and his patience to the fish and understanding that th that patience was really the key to him getting bit by the female opposed to catching the bucks or not catching them at all. Because at one time, Dave, there were 87 boats around Scott Martin in this, you know, this grass cove that he was in. And there were only, I think two or three uh, open anglers in there on, on the final day. And there were still, I would say, 20 to 30 boats in there on the final day. And he's still catching nine, seven to nine pound fish. And I'm looking around like a periscope watching these other guys catching two pounders. 
And it was so, like that from day one, correct? Like, I mean, yes. the area he wanted yes. it is it, not it's a, a secret. I mean, no, he literally walked hole. the field while looking at him. 100%. And you cannot take that away from Scott Martin. And while it may have had, he may have had been assisted by his electronics. That's not what it was all about. And, and, and I will give him credit and defend him all day long and all night for, for what he did and how he won that tournament. That was badass. Yeah. No, again, I mean, it's his job to outfish everybody with using the tools that are legal. And if somebody thinks that they shouldn't be legal, that's, that's your opinion. You know what I mean? Like it's that way in every sport. I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously there's going to be a committee where they're going to make some kind of decision moving forward with it. I mean, because I do believe when the elite series starts, we're going to see some science projects on boats. <laughs> see, hundred percent. Yeah, but that's because guys are seeing like that. That is dominating right now. Like that, just just like Flippin did at one time. You know, at one time you couldn't fit the rods. Rick Hunt says it. You, we you couldn't the rods rods were too long to fit in the rod lockers. They had to change the boats for that. I mean, right. what the future of this is, I don't know, and you don't know. But man, what Scott Martin's job was this past weekend is to dominate with the same technology that the majority of that field had. And, and he definitely did that. There's no question. And, you know, he was, he was so focused on everything that he did. I mean, I've never been in the boat with Scott Martin. I actually, like when I got in the boat and we were making the first leg of the run, he went to one spot first because he stopped in a little spot. Again, it was a community hole and there was a bunch of people fishing there. He stopped there to check it because he didn't want to be fishing where he was, where, what got him to that part, that end, that final day. He didn't want to go there and not catch what he was catching and then have regrets about not stopping at that first spot because it was a big fish location. So he fished there. The water was really muddy. He never got a bite. And he moved on, but during that little run, you know, um, he was, he was, he was just, he was just laser focused on what he was doing. And, and again, I'd never, I, I introduced myself. I mean, we knew each other, we've been around each other, we've high-fived or knuckled or whatever, but I had to reintroduce myself because we had never officially met and said, hi, my name's Jake. Hi, I'm Scott Martin. And so we made a, an official introduction. So that was really my first experience with Scott. And I will have to say, um, I mean, it was a, it was a great experience. You know, Scott's a different level of of marketing. He's a different incredible. level of incredible marketer. He's a different level of legacy, and all those things that everyone has different opinions about who he is or what he does. But I will say, when you get in the boat and it's just one on one, which not many people have, you know, the opportunity to 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 be in an intimate fishing intense setting like that scott martin is a human being just like everyone else and i had a wonderful time being in his boat and and i hope he sees this and understands that that was a great experience for me i've been in the boat with a lot of different people had a lot of big experiences that i shared with with some great anglers and that was that was a top one of my definite career highlights with bassmaster for sure when you say he was laser focused, like what stood out to you 
to prove to kind of prove that point like what well, well, patience 100 like it was you when you when you talk to him he'll tell you that that whole tournament that especially the end there on the last day was was mostly about his patience and what he had learned the first two days and perhaps in practice as well but watching the other boats around him either not catch fish or catch males all day long and then him catching i mean dude he didn't even have a fish until until eleven o'clock, and then he wow. caught a he caught a nine pounder, and then he caught like four bucks. Okay, and he adjusted. He's like, okay, I mean, I think two of the bucks he pro he caught on purpose. He knew he was going to catch them. I mean, he even said before he set the hook, the bucks got it, and then he set the hook, and there's you know it's a dink, but then literally thirty or forty minutes later. I mean, he's got a nine, a nine and a half, a seven, a six, and it's like, holy crap. And he still, he weighed 31 pounds, seven ounces at the weigh-in, and he still had a three-pounder in as well. I have wow. no doubt in my mind that he had 30 or 40 more minutes to fish, he would have, he would have caught another seven to nine pounder because they were there and he saw him. He saw him. He just ran out of time. Wow. Broke. It was insane. All the records, the three-day total weight record for Bassmaster ever. The Bassmaster opens three-day weight record. And dude was knocking on, like you said, knocking on 100 pounds for three days of fishing. And it's incredible. I mean, it it, it really was. Um, what were the boats around you guys? Like, what was the re reaction? Like, three they days in a row, he is, oh, really? They were cheap. They were, they were so kind and, I, and there were airboats, you know, guys, well, I guess by that time, by third day, it's, it's only what the top 12 get to fish in top the open 10. Top, top 10. 10. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And, and there was only one other guy. I think it was, uh, Easton, uh, Easton, oh, uh, father Gill. father Gill. He was the only other guy in that spot College fishing kid. and he actually caught a nine pounder, like, I don't know. He's probably 85 or 90 yards away from Scott's boat. And, and then there were, there were airboats that had come through the cattails that had parked out beside us. There were other anglers. There were some open guys that didn't make the last day that were out there fishing. And there were guides with clients, all those things. And everyone that was around him said, are we in your way, Scott? And the, 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 the bantering back and forth was quite fascinating too, because, you know, Scott has learned over time, particularly with his, his dad as his mentor and all of his experiences being a, you know, a superstar in the bass fishing industry. He was so kind to everyone. Even the guy in the airboat was, he was about to crank up and leave towards the end of the afternoon. And he said, Scott, am I going to bother you if I fire this thing up? And he goes, Oh, heavens. No, by all means do what you got to do, man. And he acted that way to everyone. So, you know, I was I was extremely impressed with his his congeniality, along with his his politeness and his just 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 overall kindness to everyone around him. And and I feel like his energy level was high. Of course, I'm in the back of the boat. You know, I'm like holding the camera. He's holding up nine pounders and I'm going, yeah, like I was so fired up. It reminded me a lot of Lee Livesey's Lee last Livesey. day at Lake Fork. That was very, very similar experience. So yeah, it, it was cool, man. When you were explaining it there, that's the whole time. That's what I was thinking. Like that in my head, I'm like, <laughs> it's 
I mean, Scott's crowd probably didn't drink near as much as Lee's crowd. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's probably very true. <laughs> what was one of the cool things that you got to see that hardly anybody got to see? Most likely, what was it like showing up at the dock? You know, with him and his his mom, his dad, is you know, so many family members showed up there, and and then all the people that indirectly basically work for his family um everybody what was that scene like uh it was a mob i mean it was it, let me let me start here one of the things that i've i learned and, and it, i learned it from mike iconelli and one of the ways that i judge people which i try not to do anyway but we all judge, right? And one of the things that helps me actually judge a person's character is how they are around their family, how they are yeah. around their wife, how they are around their kids, their dad, their mom. Those other people, fans are a completely different contingency of people. And sometimes, you know, superstars in any sport don't act the same around fans as they do around their family. That's who they really are. And one time at a, at a classic, I was covering Iconelli. I think it was at Conroe in, in Houston. And he was, he was the whole time before takeoff, he was totally focused on his family, especially his wife and his children. And so that really put a perception in my head as to how I see these professional anglers and how, you know, that they're really just human beings, just, they put their pants on just like everyone else. And so when we got back to the dock, I knew Scott had told me before we took off, he goes, man, I, I he didn't say, I know my dad's going to be there. I know my mom's going to be there. I know, I know all these people are going to be there. He goes, I just really hope that my dad's there. And I really hope you know, the only person that can't be there and I wish she could, but she's fishing at Gunnersville today is Hillary, his daughter and all the rest of his, his family and contingency were there. And as soon as he got back to the boat, I literally was like, okay, I'm going to get my stuff and I'm going to, I'm going to shake his hand and I'm out of here because I mean, it was like, it was like Tom Brady pulling up to the dock. It was and, and I could see the emotion from them. The first person that got to Scott and he made his way through the crowd was Roland Martin, his dad. And to me, like I guess got goosebumps uh, remembering that moment because there's not when you're when you're doing something like your dad was your mentor. He was your hero. He paved the way for not only you, but the rest of this industry and so many people. When someone like that walks up and gives you a hug and he goes, man, I heard you had a great day out there and everyone just started laughing. That was a moment for me to remember because that was not Roland Martin and Scott Martin. That was a dad and his son. And it was yeah. really, really cool to see that. It, I think it says a lot about their family too. You know, you think about it like, I mean, a lot of people will look and be like, wow, it'd be pretty cool to be Roland Martin's son. You know, and, you know, it obviously opens some doors for you, you know, to have that family name, but to have the work ethic and to be as successful as Scott is, you know what I mean? They're, like, if you look oh, at, yeah. in the history of not just fishing in any sport, I mean, to, to be the son of Roland Martin is not an easy thing to live up to. Um, and it's amazing. To... And, and you look at Hillary, I, I mean, my prediction for a long time is she'll be the biggest Martin of all of them eventually. Um, huh, she's got the tools. Yeah. So it's really, 
that that is incredible to hear and and see happen. It was neat. I walked away. I thought about, okay, I'm going to pull my camera out and film this, but quite frankly, I mean, his videographer, you know, McCoy was there. McCoy Fisher was rolling, but honestly, from a dad perspective, I had a dad that, that I loved very much. He taught me everything that I know. I think about him every single day. And now being a dad to Walker and Aspen and Scarlett, I thought to myself, I'm not doing my job right now because I should probably be filming this emotional moment with Scott and Roland and his mom was there, his wife. I mean, you could see the genuine authenticity in their in this family affair in this moment. And I remember I, I asked Scott before we left on camera, actually on live, I said, if you could say one thing to your dad right now on live television, if he's watching, what would you say? He said, I would just say, dad, thank you so much. I, I'm, I get choked up, man. Like this wow. is the kind of stuff that chokes me up. And he said, I, I just want to thank my dad for everything that he's done for me and the sport. And for me to, he knew he was going to win. He, I didn't tell him. I mean, I have to, he had 30 something pounds and which meant Tucker or, 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 you know, Randall Tharp had to catch 40 pounds, <laughs> you know, to beat him. And so he knew he won and he got choked up and, and I knew I was like, you know, my mentor in production one time told me your job is to make people cry because that makes you pull the emotional center out of, out of, out of what, the, who they really are. And when he said that, it, it told you everything you need to know about how Scott, Scott Martin feels about what he does, where he got it from and that just the authenticity behind that appreciation. And so, I mean, dude, go Scott, go Roland. Congratulations. That was, that was impressive. Even and and people say, well, that's your home lake. Well, let me tell you, and you know, this Dave, that's probably, that's harder than harder than winning a tournament, you know, that that's not your home lake, the pressure, all that stuff. I mean, he, let's say, let's just face it. The last time we were there, he choked. He had a great first day and then things just fell apart on him this day. He didn't let that happen. He wins. And it was an incredible experience. He also comes into that event after just being the first guy out of the classic this past year. Mm -hmm. So he's not fishing the classic, but he goes into that event and now he's automatically in the 2025 Bassmaster Classic. What do you think that does to him this year? I, I know what it does because he said it. Like he he was so relieved, and that took. It's like you know, it's like when um, when Jason won at Chickamauga, he could let his hair down and and let his hands fly the rest of the season because the pressure of qualifying for the for the uh, classic was off of his back and it's more of a gorilla than people think it is when that's on your back particularly if you haven't qualified if you're Scott Martin you haven't qualified for the classic and this pressure to be that guy is on your back and then all of a sudden the criticism the Dan Marino criticism comes in and all that crap and then you you win a tournament on your home lake your dad won a tournament. The last tournament he won there was 1991, which he was being compared to. And then to, to, to shatter like 
swindles re- 80 Three pound days. record and all those things involved it was just overwhelming and i mean you know i don't know how many people realize how historical that actually was but there was a lot of different variables that that or a lot of bowling pins that fell down that day um as scott martin you know as you know on day three that can be one of the most or day four can be one of the most challenging days because you've you've you know you've caught hundreds of fish out of your out of the spot there's 87 other boats catching hundreds of fish and you just don't know what that day is going to bring and for him to finish all i could think about that day was you know when you win tournament kevin van dam told me this one time you got to know how to win and and like the chiefs do or the patriots did or whatever it is i know i know i know i did that for you i'm a little, I'm a little good you have to you have to know how to win to keep winning right and that's what he did yeah he shut I, the door and what he's been through the last number of years i mean to to come to the opens to have to qualify for the elites after for all intents and purposes, already having a hall of fame career, literally, you know, like, if, I mean, if Scott Martin never comes to bass, I believe he's a hall of famer. You know what I mean? Like you 100%. look at what he's accomplished at FLW, but he comes and he qualifies through the opens, which, which is no walk in the park as everybody's talked about. And then the first few years on tour, you know, he made class, he made the classic every year, but this past year, but it's not up to the Scott Martin standard, but that's also a pressure that he carries because if, if you're anyone else, you're like, Hey, you're just getting started. Good for you. But when you're Scott Martin, he holds a much higher standard to go through all that. And then to win, um, is, is pretty incredible. Um, I got to correct you on one thing because we're going to get hammered in the comments. It had to be Christie's win on in orange that you're talking about, because when he won on, when he won on chick, he had already qualified for the classic because he's the previous classic champion. The, yeah, sorry about that. And I don't mean to call yeah. you out, but no, no, no. I'm glad out. you did. They, they hold us to a very I know. high standard. I know, I know. That's a lot to remember, and I'm glad, I'm glad you corrected me, and thank you for that. And sorry about that to all the, the Mercer no. fans out there. Uh, I, I want to say one other thing too. One of the things that stands out, like everyone talks about Kevin Van Dam's work ethic. You know, it's it's constant. You're marketing for your sponsors. You're constantly learning new things about your equipment. You're you're you never know everything about the fish and the resources that you're using. And you talk about mega superstars, the the Kevin Van Dams in the fishing world, the the Patrick Mahomes of the of the football world, or you know whatever it is. When you're a mega star, you never stop. You 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 don't have an off button. And I will say this about Scott Martin: with all the TV productions that he does, all the sponsorship uh, plugs that he's doing, the angling, the businesses that he's a part of, all those things, he does not have an off button. Even when you're alone and the cameras are down and you're just sitting in the boat, it's constantly going. And it's not because. It's not because of, of arrogance or or attitude. It's just the way he's wired. It's the way he was brought up, and that's how he knows he knows how to be successful. And it's it's respectful and admirable to me. Oh yeah, big time, big time. I mean, you watch him when we have a a weather day or whatever on the elites. I mean, there 
there's no like some people are like, well, we're going to just go sleep for the day. There's no sleep. He's right away. Like, what lake do we go to that's nearby that I can shoot something? You know, like his McCoy is always working because because yeah, because yeah. it's yeah. like trying to keep up with freaking Roadrunner. You know what I mean? You watch Scott Martin, how he moves around and it, it's incredible. How did what stood out to you outside of. You know how he was using that technology and his patience, but why do you think he was able to, I mean, seemingly basically looked like he was in a different tournament, which is so rare to, to have in any tournament, never mind a 225 boat tournament. You mean what, what, like, what was there detail? anything that he was doing that stood out to you? It, it was, or was his it patience. Just he's I'm better at that. No, I, I really think, I think the, what separated him from all the people around him was his his commitment to his patience, and and again when you at, when you talk to him, ask him. I I I bet I bet a lot of money that that's exactly what he would say because he stayed on fish that most people would have walked away from, and you know he was. I mean he did like everyone else. He was switching baits. I mean he caught the, his biggest fish, which was either nine and a half or ten pounds, on a spinning rod with a wacky worm because nothing else was working. He changed colors. He had this little, uh, he had, he had a bait formula that actually was a was derived from the original fish formula. The very first, um, scent that came out, which was actually done in my hometown on Kentucky Lake fish formula. Of course it was. <laughs> and he even mentioned that he, 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 and, and we, we talked about that, but anyway, you know, he did the same things everyone else does, but his commitment to his patience. And he said that, uh, a multitude of times, either on camera or off camera, he said, I'm not, I'm not moving. I'm he would, and he would pull down. He might change angles because that fish had seen the bait so many times and he didn't do the, he didn't do the vibrating rod thing like Drew Cook does. I mean, he just, he barely moved his baits across the beds and it was literally patience. And even he would go back and fish maybe two or three more grass clumps and then come back to that same spot. He would literally pull down at the same angle and start fishing the same exact way again. And, you know, I would say that his electronics did help him understand the mood of the fish because he couldn't see it. You know, even with his glasses on, you couldn't see through the water because of the murkiness. And so he was analyzing the mood of the fish and 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 just just literally patient used patience um to to catch every single fish that he caught. Not not one of them was caught on the first cast. None of them were. He had to work for every single one of them, and eventually he caught every fish that he was trying to catch. It was cool, man. A very cool, very cool moment. I mean, in his that technology allows you to be more patient. I mean, it's like it, it does. turns it the, does. everything into sight fishing, literally, because you know what the fish are doing. But now you get to know what they're doing, I think, even more so because you look at a previous, you know, you mentioned Drew Cook, sight fishing. There's those fish are acting a certain way. You got to be a certain distance close to them. So you're interrupting the way they act, most likely, anyways. Um, so yeah, I, I think uh, I think it was an awesome win and a freaking great start to the season. If you ask oh me, my not, not just for him, I mean for bass. Like oh. I mean, 
what what it all fired sudden, up i mean it was just like this explosion like like <laughs> you walk in you know the doors open it's just boom bassmasters is back and I, I you know i was i was when we when i got in the boat and we took off you know at where we were at roland martin's boat ramp there at that at the roland martin compound and and right there from the docks you literally have like a 50 yard idle to take off to where you can where you can throttle down and as soon as we start going through that first shoot that first famous shoot through the trees and the grass there coming out into the wide open space of lake okeechobee i was thinking to myself i'm so glad i'm here right now i'm so glad that i decided to work the first open because i i realized how much i missed being away and how exciting this sport really is when you're in the middle of it. It's, what, what a great sport. We're so lucky, Dave. Yeah. Got some, Dude, we're so lucky, man. Very, very lucky. <laughs> very lucky. Did, did you spend any time at the Tiki bar down at, at Roland Martin's Marine? I, I have before, but I didn't oh, on this occasion. Yeah. Not this time. I, I, my brother-in-law, ironically enough, we flew in and out of West Palm beach, Florida, and it's an hour and a half from, uh, from Clewiston. And so, I flew in and I texted my sister who's in Tucson, Arizona at the gym and mineral trade show. I texted her and I said, I just landed in West Palm beach. And she goes, Oh, Devin's there. That's her husband. And he's, he's my brother-in-law. He's just freaking, we have the best time together. So I contacted him and he was staying with a friend. They were having a crawfish boil on Saturday night. So me and Brandon Fiend decided to pack up as soon as the weigh-in was over and we hauled ass to West Palm beach and drank beer and ate crawfish that night with my brother-in-law. So that's what we did. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Sounds like a good way to finish yeah. off the week. I do love a, a good tiki bar though. I'm a big fan. I do too. And that one's, a, they have a cool one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a nice place. So what about what what do you got now? Are you are you home until the Elite Series starts? Or are you home until at this next Bend. open? No, I've I've decided, you know, with my kids and all the activities that they're getting into and all that space, um, I need I have to be a dad first and I'm gone enough as it is. So I've I've decided to work the first open and then the last three opens and then all obviously all the elite events. So I won't be back at another open until what four or five more pass, but, um, I'm looking forward to Toledo bend and all the, all the, uh, you know, all the, all the anglers on the, the elite anglers are getting fired up on their social media again, and their boats are wrapped and everybody got their boats on time this year. And, you know, it's, it's, we're going to have a good year. This is going to be, this is going to be big. This is, I, I can, you can feel the energy already. You excited about the first two being in Texas? I am because it's different. Normally yeah. we're in Florida and I just got the, you know, Florida thing out of, out of my system. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Toledo Ben, I, I watched a little, um, you know, I think, uh, Dustin won the major league DC? fishing event. Yeah. Last week, last weekend at Toledo Ben, and there were some really big fish caught. Yeah. Um, Cliff crochet and 11 pounder. Yeah, I saw that. That was pretty cool. So, you know, and I think some some of those guys had mentioned they were there just a little early this year. So, you know, whatever that means for us and the elites, 
are we going to hit it at the right time? If we do, that could be, that could be a whole bunch of Scott Martins there. Cause there's some big fish in that lake. And then Lake Fork, we're always there, you know, at a different time of the year for us to be there this early is going to be really, um, you know, what's it going to be like? What's Lake Fork going to be like this time of year? I mean, the question about Lake Fork this time is, can anyone beat Lee Livesey? You know what I mean? Like he's been the last, I mean, and he'll downplay it and tell you, but that, that to me is like you said, to win at home, everybody says, well, that's your home lake. Well, look at, I mean, the Johnston brothers as highly touted as they are on the St. Lawrence river and they deserve every accolade they get there. Absolutely. We've been there a bunch and they've won one elite and one open out of those times. It, it is very, I mean, they're almost always, I don't think there's ever been a time where, where one of them is not in the top 10, top five even. Right. But to actually seal the deal and win the way Lee has the last two times on Lake Fork has been incredible. Um, and, I'm and excited Lake about the season. Lake Fork is up. Lake Fork is at almost full capacity. And all that vegetation that was growing over the last four or five years with the water levels down to where they were are going to be underwater. Does that mean are the fish going to be out on structure when we get there? Or are they going to be up in shallow water? If they're in shallow water, how are they going to get to them? You know, it's going to be a really interesting derby and I'm excited about these, you know, these first two events being where they are. And of course I can't wait to get to Tulsa and the classic. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm excited about? I'm excited about Jake's take being back in my life. (laughs) I have missed you. I've missed you too, Dave. Well, and I'm sure the fine folks that tune in, well, I hope they missed us, but we are back and, um, I'll let you go to where, where are you going right now to train with Ivan Drago or what, what's next? <laughs> I'm actually going to work out. <laughs> well, of course you are. Of course you are. Yeah. This has been Jake's take and I'm so happy to have you back in my life and we will see you in Texas very, very soon. Thank you. So good to have Jake's take back in our lives. Thank you, Jake Latondras. And that's not all. We got more. It is time for Clunday, Clunday, Clunday. Rick Clun. Rick Clun, I am somewhat nervous right now just simply because you agreed to do this and I, I don't want to screw it up on the first ever episode. How are you doing? Uh, you know, I like you when you're nervous because you you, you, you get out of, the, out of the MC mode into the real. And the problem I've always had with MCs and writers, and you know, I've talked to you and Zona both. I didn't know who what part of y'all was real, but when you get nervous, you, you get real, and, and and I like what I see. So that's good. I'm glad you're nervous. Do you get nervous often? What what makes Rick Clun nervous? Uh, a young kid back in the audience is asking me, "What's the biggest bass you caught, Mister Clun?" And back then it was eight pounds. And this was after I'd already won two world championships. And when I tell him it's eight pounds, he goes, well, hell, my grandma's caught one bigger than that. (laughs) Every time after I did a seminar, I got nervous that that kid was going to ask me that question. So that was in the early days when, right, I wasn't, I was having to get used to being in front of an audience in a crowd. And like you say, answering questions and, I don't really get that nervous anymore. Uh, you know, when you like you do a show, you want a big audience, right? 
Yeah. You like to think you have a big audience. Well, when we used to do seminars, your biggest fear was nobody would show up. And, uh, and then I finally just made myself realize, and there was times when just only a handful of people showed up. You know, even I did one recently up in Kansas City, and we only had a handful of people show up because the Kansas City Chiefs, Mahomes and Kelsey was playing that day, okay? So, uh, but I, I kind of, years ago, I said, I don't care if only one person sitting out in that audience. That person might have drove 200 miles to hear me sit, tell them, and I'm going to give them the best I got. If it's, yeah. just, if it's a one or a hundred. So I, that kind of got over the nervousness a little bit. Yeah. I, I always think bigger the crowd, the easier it is. You know, the, the, the small audience is, is tougher. And I just use the 10% rule, whether you're trying to make somebody cheer, somebody cry, somebody laugh, it doesn't matter. If 10% of people laugh and there's 10,000 people there, that's a big laugh. If there's 10 people there and 10% of them laugh, that is one dude in the back of the room and it just makes the joke even more awkward. Did, was it a, did it take you a long time knowing you now when you first got in, did it really take you a long time to get accustomed to being that person? Like, would you, would you rather that part of the sport just went away on you? No, I would, uh, there's an energy to that part. Uh, it's not always the same. Obviously we have different venues and, yeah. And some some audiences just are, are humongous and, and some are not just due to the venue we were at. Uh, if we like we're going to Toledo Bend here in just a few weeks, that venue there probably won't be gigantic because they have one of those events going on every weekend. Now they don't have necessarily the same names, but still, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it does have an effect. Where if you go to Florida, you know, like we do in February, and of course you got a lot of people my age down there, you know, they're looking for something to do, and that audience is huge, and it's an audience that I can I can relate to, really, a lot easier, and uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, the young audience is showing back up. You hear my bird? What That's what kind of bird do you have? A loon. What? It's a loon. <laughs> it's, it's our security system. Mostly just drove out the out our road and and triggered the, the security system, which is a loon. So it's it's appropriate, you know. But uh, no, I let's uh, go on to whatever. I, you know, I lost track on this this audience deal. Well, you mentioned the season starts in a couple of weeks. Um, what what is your life like preparing for the season? I mean, you've done this forty nine other times. I'm sure you've got it down to a pretty good rhythm. Yeah, but it's always uh, there's you know there's really a lot more going on than most people think. And when you when I, it's going to bore you, bore them when I tell them what it is. I've got to get a new belt ready. You got to get you know new equipment on it. You got you got to make sure break that in. You got to make sure that equipment's all working correctly. Uh, you got to get new uniforms. Uh, and I just got a message back from Bass that my flag on my shoulder was facing the wrong direction on these shirts that I'm supposed to have next week. Okay, and so we're we're bearing. So there's always that little stuff like that, and it's 
but it's again, I, it's to me, it's not, it's not anything big. It's, it's just getting prepared. And that's just the physical things you got to do. The mental things to me are, are, are the ones that will test you. Beginning of our season is like New Year's. You know how many people make certain promises on New Year's? Oh, this year I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do this better. I'm going to change this. And, and I'm going to get in better shape, you know, blah, 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 and all that. And unfortunately, most of us don't do it. And we, we get fired up for a month or so, and then we just go back to our old habits. And fishermen are no different. Uh, and I'm at, I'm at this stage where I'm really trying to change hard because I know I have to. And uh, if I still want to compete at, at, at a good level. And, uh, but boy, it's really not easy. The mental part to change is just not easy. Uh, and at first, I've been trying to do it for several years now, ever since, you know, this new style of angler has came on the scene. And, uh, and I've been trying to do it for several years. And so at first, I guess I'm just going to start doing a lot of what they're doing. And I don't mean, I'm, we're talking about the equipment that's being used nowadays and changing over to using this electronics the way you're going to have to. And, uh, but I've, I've done, okay, this year I'm kind of, approaching it mentally a little bit different. Uh, the, the problem with changing is well, it doesn't mean you have to give up what you used to do well. And, uh, but you do have to, to, to devote, you do have to devote more time to the change, but you can't, don't just throw away what used to work. So I really want to blend them together. I'm, I, I know my old way still at certain days and certain bodies of water still is the way to do it. But I know on other bodies of water in certain days, I've got to do it this way. And the reverse is true for these young anglers, uh, where they're really good at this new electronic way of fishing. They, 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 they have to blend in my way of fishing. And you don't assume, don't make the assumption that that's not good anymore because it is good. It's not good every day, okay, like it used to be. Where what they do is, is really more efficient and more consistent every day, but not all days. And so that's when they have to turn into the old Rick Clunder, the old Kevin Van Dam. So now I'm doing the reverse. I'm trying to maintain that, know the proper timing to do it, but then, then, uh, you know, be in practice probably, but also in the tournament, be blending this other style in and see how they're going to work together. Because it would, be, it would be sad for me to give up an old friend, okay? And the way I used to fish, fish was an incredible old friend. I mean, it just gave me so much. It allowed me to connect with levels that I would have never connected at with the world we live in. And, uh, and then, but this other way now is, it can do the same thing, but in a different way. And so I just got to find the right way to blend them together, you know, and it's, it's not easy. But that's kind of what I'm attempting to do this year. How do you know? In simple terms, how do you, I mean, I know you could get real deep and be like every day is different, but how do you know when it's time to 
rely more on technology and when it's time to rely more on your, let's call it for lack of a better term, inst instinctual way of fishing? Uh, it's kind of like the way I won uh, the last two tournaments of my career, 2016-2019 on the St. John's River. I didn't, and it's just true with my style of fishing, it only works in small windows of time most of the time. There are a few days that it works all day or kind of all day. But most of the time, there's just these small windows of time that it really works efficiently. And the rest of the time, you're really wasting your time. And so that's my opportunity to realize what those key windows of time are for my embodies of water and, and are from my O style. And then when those windows are not there, maybe for the next three hours a day, then I've got to switch. Now that's when to make the switch. Because the one thing I've noticed about the, unless you use the word, I, I'm trying not to, but of course everybody freaks out about it, but the forward facing sonar, what's tangible? People go, okay, I'm still catching good streams. You know, at, at uh, let's use St. Lawrence River as the last tournament. I was pushing 20 pounds a day doing my way of fishing. But you, you, I, I, and occasionally I can catch a 20 plus pound day, but I can't do it every day. That old style of fishing is incredibly difficult to put those magnum strings together every day. And, uh, and that's where this new style of fishing is so, it seems to be so much more consistent. Their bad days are 20 pound days, not 17 pound days. Okay. Their good days could be, who knows, 27, 28 pounds. I'm again thinking of the smallmouth tournaments. Uh, but uh, that's their good days. But their bad days are kind of my good days. <laughs> so I, that, that's what you got to realize, even though those days are fun. I mean, yeah, if I'm burning a spinnerbait, catching 20 pounds of smallmouth a day, that's hard to beat as far as the actual emotion and fun of it. But at the same time, I'm a tournament angler. And I got, I got to figure out how, and I've had good days. I've had 30 plus pound days doing what I do, but, but there's a small, I understood those small windows of time and when to be there and when to maximize them. And uh, uh, I, I, what I think this other technique allows is a, a level of consistency we have never seen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I how have you rejected the, and and I I agree with you. It is the F word, forward facing sonar. You start bringing it up, and and it's it amazes me. I mean, part of me I love the fact that people are as passionate as they are about a sport. That means they love it. It means they care about it. But it does bring different emotions out in people. But the average person paints it as it's a younger guy's game, and the older guys struggle at it. How have you rejected the all too common narrative of yeah, that's not fishing. I, I don't do that. How, how have you been so different in this process? Well, the older we get, obviously, in all things in life, we increase our resistance to change. So, A, number one, that's our problem being older guys. But the one thing you've got to remember is most of these young anglers I know have been doing this less than five years. And I've seen them learn this technique, and some of them, less than two, in two years or three years. Uh, 
okay. So am, am I resistant change so much that I don't think I can take that amount of time and really learn this technique? No, I remember when Flipkin came in, Lee Thomas came out here and Dave Glebe came east and kicked everyone's butt. I mean, Dave won three, four major tournaments on this country when he first came in, Dave Glebe, flipping. In almost every tournament, he won by over 25 pounds in a three-day event. He was kicking our butt. So what, what, I could have taken the same attitude then toward this. Golly, that's a technique I don't know. I haven't done. I don't do. Blah, blah, blah. Instead, I, I embraced the technique. Okay. I was, you can see, I was younger. Though. I wasn't in the age I am now. And uh, I embraced that technique. And I said, okay, what's, what, what makes them good? And what makes them good was their ability to isolate fish. And, uh, and, and basically, once they isolated the fish, let's use Okeechobee, yeah, you know, as an example, there's grass everywhere. That's a hard place to isolate fish. Okay, now, yes, there's a lot of fish in a lot of different places here. But Dave went there and he just find two or three reeds out in the middle of Hydrilla or something, matted over, and he'd power all the way to them and flip his jig down in there, and boom. He wouldn't even make another cast. He might make two or three in there, then he'd power over to another one. He'd isolated those fish, and even in all that grass, they were holding on something different. And, uh, and I said, I can do that. You know, I, I'm good at isolate patterning and fish. And so I said, you know, out west, you got to remember where they come from. They don't have to isolate as difficult areas as we have in the south and the east. So I had been fishing that kind of stuff my whole life. I knew how to isolate fish in these massive weed beds. So obviously, I said, you know, I just got, I can, I got to learn their technique because I know I can outfish them this way. Okay. And, and that's, and I've kind of looked at this forward facing the same way. What's hard is we, we can't really see how, what they're isolating unless they're letting you see the screen. And yet they're isolating with that forward facing sonar. They're just, those fish, they're like, you know, they're like right now, those fish are following the same thing that they followed in the winter patterns. They're following channels, they're following the bait, you know. And yes, you might be able to find isolated fish that are not, but so I've got to understand what they're isolating and then use their equipment to find it and you know, find it. All they're doing is just, they're just so much more efficient at it, you know, instead of the whole way we used to do it. So I'm very, really, I'm optimistic that it's a technique that I'm not too old to learn. Now, if you think you're too old to learn, then yeah, you're going to, you're not going to like it. How many times in your career has something come along like flipping a great example? Because I'm also thinking about, I could have just imagined what people said, the exact same things they said, I'm sure. Like it's barbaric. The fish, like the fish don't get a chance to bite. It, like, you know what I mean? Like there's people that want to paint forward facing sonar in that, but I'm sure you could say all the same things about flipping Similar. in the day. So yeah. how many times in your career, is it perpetual that it's like every five years there's something new coming, every two years, every 10 years? I would hope so. Uh, you know, I, oh yeah, getting back to flipping. Oh, they wanted to outlaw every long rod that was, existed. Oh no, you can't. What's the, we, and Ray Scott, they were limiting what size length rod you could have in a boat. 
the cost of the flipper for bringing in custom eight foot rods. No, no, that's too big. That's too big. You can't have that big a rod. Don't fit in the rod boxes. <laughs> they didn't fit in some of those old boat rod boxes. Of course, that, they solved that pretty quick by, you know, making bigger rod boxes. But at the same time, that's just, a, they were looking for somehow to censor it. And golly, I, I, I remember the, you know, fishing with Carl Lorenz when he said, you know, that even there were states up north that wanted to ban the little simple green box. Yeah. He made, uh, you know, of course, the Alabama rig is another example. Uh, and, and really, yeah, there are extremes we eventually probably need to watch out for. You know, Alabama rig, do you really want a guy having 15 lures tied on and flinging it out there? No, that's an extreme, but I don't think, I think if you get back to where it's reasonable, it's, it's still a valid technique. Same way with all with flipping, same way with forward facing. Yeah, we, 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 we're already seeing a few extremes, but let's just see what those really are. And then, okay, just temper them back some. Do, do you think the Alabama rig should have been outlawed? No. No, it was just panic. Yeah. No, I do. I don't think, I think I, that it should have been limited in most states have limited how many hooks you can put on it. I think, you know, that's, I'm not going to say I'm smart enough to say the exact proper yeah. rig, but uh, no, I don't think it should have been. Um, you know, it's because not only is that, inadvertently, we limited some other lures when we did that. Yeah. And we limited a spinnerbait when you did that. You know, you limited uh, a spinnerbait was the original Alabama rig to begin with. Yeah. And um, so, I don't know. It's uh, the fishermen are going to continue to try to figure a better mousetrap, and it amazes me that they continue to do that. Sometimes you think everything has been can be thought of has already been thought of, but no. Innovation. I mean, it, it, and I think that most people, when they think of things, they don't think of them in competitors' eyes. Like I always think that the the Alabama rig is prime example. Like you said, I don't think that the the rig itself was a problem, but what it would have become, I think we're seeing happen with forward facing sonar, the exact same thing where it might not be a problem, but now we're going to have guys with seven units. Is that a problem? Does there have to be a line made somewhere? I think, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say what that, what that is, but uh, definitely I think uh, you, you can hit an extreme there, which doesn't make any sense from from many, many angles. I mean, what is, what is the greatest thing that we wanted to ever, that I've seen in my career for 50 years now that people wanted to ban? What's the number one thing? I'm, I'm going to say uh, you. They wanted to ban you. Be the tournament angler. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I see. I, I watched that my whole career early on. Oh, you need to ban these tournaments. You know, you shouldn't allow the tournaments, and some states didn't allow tournaments. And uh, and uh, because, yeah, we're a pretty aggressive group, and I and we and we should and both most of us still treat people right. But there's some guys out there in the tournaments that don't want to treat people right. But it's just not tournament guys, it's other guys as well. But my point is, is that 
we wanted to ban the number one reason that fishing is still alive. Fishing would not exist if it weren't for tournaments. Not, not, not what you see here. This industry, the amount of lures, all these these innovations. This fishing is the catalyst to keep fishing alive. Okay, that's why even in the worst economic times we have, fishing goes up. People go to the lake more. Okay, because yeah, it's just a great source of sanity, uh, but at the same time, it's. We're, we're bringing all this new stuff. You just went to some meeting at the Space Center in Houston, and they're bringing, I don't know, I haven't heard yet, but they're, they're trying to introduce some new stuff into the sport, which, is, which keeps people interested, keeps people excited. And, and you lure, I remember when I was a kid, and my neighbor went to Washita, Lake Washita in Arkansas, and he come back raving about this super lure that you couldn't even buy, you had to rent. Okay, it cost you $10 a day to rent, but you had to put up a $50 deposit in case you lost it. Do you know what that lure was? No. Rapala. The uh, first little men, Rapala menace. You had to rent when they came to this country. But it, the fish, everybody got nuts over it. You know, this, this. so that's the neat thing about fishing and the communication and the education and the innovation you know, it's a huge catalyst, but shoot, I can tell you how many outdoor riders and how many non-tournament anglers wanted outlaw tournaments for years. So it's nothing new. What scares me is the division, That, to be honest. And I always say that I'm like, our enemy is not an angler that likes to fish different whether it be a fly angler, whether it be a non-tournament, that's not, I mean, we all love fishing. Like, I mean, and it's sadly, if you look at in the hunting world, they had to be threatened a few times for them to band together. You know, now you would never, ever hear a rifle hunter say that they don't like what a bow hunter does and vice versa. It's very, very, because they had to band together. I worry that one day we're going to be too busy fighting each other and how we think this sport should be taken that, People that just really want the sport taken can win the fight. Yeah, I, I'm not. I don't fear that as much as I might have used to, because of, of uh, because of the amount of young anglers that are getting involved. Yeah, you know, because unfortunately, my age group is kind of sometimes the most opposing and the most negative. Because they don't want, we don't want things to, we remember the good old days, even though most of those don't exist. <laughs> you know, it's like make America great again. What? Okay. When was it great for you? You're in Canada, of course. But when was it great for me? When was it great for him? It's all different. So yeah. we talk about making America great again. Was it the Civil War? Was it the Revolutionary War? Was it World War One? Was it World War Two? Was it Vietnam War, on and on. We're still trying to be great. We're still trying to live up to our potential and we have tremendous potential. But let's don't throw these, these phony ideals out there. And, uh, and in fiction, we tend to do the same thing. We, we tend to remember that great trip when there wasn't nobody else on the lake, <laughs> you know, and the fish were biting every cast. And then all of a sudden next weekend, there was 25 tournament boats, stupid guys running around in jumpsuits and some bass club, you know, getting in our way. 
Well, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I'm I'm like you. I think we we get way too caught up sometimes. And I mean, still, I had to quote President Bush. Rick Klein, today you're not the world championship angler, and I'm not the president of the United States. We're just two guys who love to fish. We have that in common. It's like you say, hopefully we don't forget what we have in common as fishermen. You brought him up. Did, did Were you a fan of the jumpsuit era in professional <laughs> bass fishing? <laughs> oh, gosh. Roger Moore. I can never forget him. He's the first one that copied NASCAR and Evil Knievel. He showed up on the scene with an Evil Knievel type suit, you know. Uh, <sighs> No, I wasn't. I mean, I'm not a fan, but I just I ignored it. I didn't. I mean, it's just part of the game. But it's again, it goes against my grandmother what she said about don't toot your own horn. You know, if you got all these patches on, it's like wearing medals or something. Uh, you know, it's, you're kind of tooting your own horn, and uh, really it had nothing to do with fishing. Uh, you know, that, the beauty of it. You know, so. But it's just part of the game. And sometimes there's a lot of the game that that I didn't don't need. You know, it doesn't upset me, but I don't need it. One of the coolest things that's happened this year that I, I think has opened a lot of people's eyes is the show Bass did the cast. And it looked back on the building of the sport, how it all started. Obviously. You know, the first episode was all centered around Ray Scott, and there's an episode around you. As I've watched all of them, I mean, two things. One thing stood out, it's shocking to me how many young anglers didn't know a lot of that. You know, oh, yeah. you, you, I just take for granted that you you learned it, you know, like whether you, I mean, I wasn't around during a lot of it, but I still searched it out and learned it. But I always wondered, like, what has it been like for you to watch that series? Because you were actually there. It gave me a view from outside of it because I was inside of it. And when you're inside of it, you have a different view. And uh, and it really emphasized the positives. And I like that because it's not all positive. I mean, if, the, if you give the complete view, it's, 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 it was never as positive as, as it appears. But it, it made me, it, it allowed me to look, reflect, and really appreciate things and people in a way that at the time I couldn't appreciate because I was in the middle of the battle. And uh, I understood a lot of them. Uh, I understood the importance of them even back then, like Bill Dance. He, he, he changed the image of a bass fisherman. He was the first to do it. Uh, Actually, you could actually have teeth and catch and catch fish and talk well. Uh, before then, you know, we, we we weren't really looked at it the same way other sports were. We, you know, uh, then Roland came along and, and showed that it wasn't luck. There's a truly an art and science behind it. it and I it just. I was aware of those, but even appreciate now looking back on those shows, those people even more. And um, so it, it, it was, it's kind of neat. Uh, in fact, you asked what you could do, but I think mine is coming up this Saturday and I haven't seen it, so I have no idea what they put on it. Uh, that, I think I'm the last one in the series. 
And I see, you know how I fit in, and this is just my view. I fit in with race politics because I, in other words, I was there when Bush was standing on one side of me and Clinton was standing on the other. And Ray was scared to death what might come out of my mouth. And I didn't even know half the time what's going to come out of it. And he even asked, I may have told you this, he even asked, he knew I was going to win. I had such a big lead. He said, you want me to write down what you can say tomorrow? I said, no, Ray, I can't. I wouldn't be able to do that. And fortunately for, for Bass and Ray and me and uh, all the other anglers, I, I, I spit something out that, that they liked. You know, uh, you know it's the, there's no place else on the planet, no matter what you think of, are we a perfect country? No, will we ever be? Probably not. But where else in the world could I chase little green fish and make $50,000 in three days? I don't know any place else. So, Ray, that really, you know, hit home. That's, a, that's, what, that's what the sport needed at that time. Even Bush went back and used that speech before Congress. So, um, so it's, Ray was, was talented, very talented. He was obviously a huge promoter, lied a hell of a lot. And uh, about, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to explain that. Even to this day, it's hurting a lot of the young anglers, it, those, those early non-troops. And that was, you win the BAS tournament, you become a millionaire. Really, Ray? Okay. Yeah, there are some guys, Jimmy Houston, and those guys are, you know, TV shows and all that kind of stuff. But that was misleading so many of these, these people that I wish I'd feel sad for, because I see it happen now. They don't get rich quick. And, and, and it ruins their love for what they love to do, which was fishing. And, uh, but at the same time, he was, he was brilliant. Ray was brilliant at sucking in the right people at the right time. You know, the most important person he ever brought in, in my opinion, Bob Cobb. Yeah. Ray would have never survived without Bob Cobb because he, he could not get along with the media. And but Bob knew how to do that. And Bob did. But then Ray kept bringing in the right person at the right time. You know, like I said, Roland, Bill Dance, you know, other people that just fit with where the sport was going at that point in time. He was brilliant at Dylan getting those people involved. I've always said, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I've always said one of the greatest things Bass has, obviously Ray started it and he's the chicken that laid the egg. I mean, and, but nobody could have done that. Like Ray, you needed a sales guy. I roll up your sleeves. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to tell the story to the world. I'm going to create a sport basically like a, a, I'm turning a pastime into a sport. And then if you look, then Helen severe comes along who had worked with bass cared about bass, but it was probably at the time where it needed to be a little bit more professional to took to a different level. And then ESPN comes along, which, I mean, exploded so many things. And then we're at a point where, if you remember, I remember people being literally scared that Bass is just going to, ESPN's just going to shut down Bass because they're they're tired of it. You know what I mean? They, they'd take their shot to make the next NASCAR. They decided it wasn't going to be. And people were worried. Well, then the perfect ownership comes along with Jerry, Don, and Jim who literally bought the, the business simply just because they cared about it that much. You need it back in those hands. And I still say that the Andersons, I mean, although they've done some great things, you can't really judge an ownership until after that term's done. But it seems like 
the right people have had it at the right times. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I totally agree with it. Uh, that, uh, and probably the biggest transition was Jerry McKinnis. Yeah. He brought ESPN to it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the one thing that everybody, every angler out there has forgotten the most important, tell me the most important thing that was ever done for the angler in the sport edition, competitive angler. Several things. And I think we're going to agree on this. Um, your boats. Absolutely. Names on your jerseys, wraps, all of those things came from the mastermind that is Jerry McKinnis. Exactly. And nobody being an angler and knowing how our boats were all taken away from us at the most important times, which was most critical to us maintaining our sponsors. Uh, and finally, them giving us our boats that we could drive through the Bassmaster Classic and represent our sponsors. We weren't fishing out of a strange boat, you know, back then. And don't get me wrong, Forrest Wood was one of the finest people ever in this industry. He gave more to this industry than anybody. But we were forced to fish out of Ranger boats in the Classic. We couldn't use our own boats. And, uh, and then the other circuits did the same thing, the FLW. We, we weren't even allowed to wear a jersey if it didn't have their sponsors on So when he gave us all of those things, it's probably the biggest thing. And then social media added to that is the biggest thing that fishermen ever have gotten so far. And yeah, we still need non-endemics to get involved. And that still hasn't been figured out. But at the same time, that was a huge transition that ESPN and Jerry McInnes and, and those things that took place. Why do you, why do you think Jerry, I've always wondered this. Why do you think Jerry doesn't get some of the accolades or credit that some others, you know, you mentioned Forrest Wood, you mentioned like if you take Forrest Wood, Bill Dance, uh, the list goes, I mean, literally, I mean, Ed, there's so many people that, but I don't feel like Jerry for as much as he's done for this sport. I don't feel like he gets as much love as he deserves. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I do, but I, and I know why he doesn't get it. And this is going to make me look real bad when I say it. He didn't get it because of the hatred for bass. He took on an organization that was hated by the anglers. Okay. And that's kind of contrary to what you see, I'm talking about the masses of anglers. I'm not talking about the few of us that made it, okay? Yeah. Is that there was, you know, there there was a huge hatred for bass when those anglers left us in 2016. That was all the, the animosity toward the ASS. And Jerry had very little to do with it. He had, he had inherited that. And... Uh, and he knew that, and that's one of the reasons he gave us our boats, because he knew it. He said, you know, I've got to do something that the anglers feel is fair and right and gives him an opportunity to make a living. Because we didn't have any way of proving our value to, to uh, companies. A little patch on your shirt. So all of a sudden now, you know, he came with Raptor truck, Raptor boat. Put that stuff on your truck. You're driving thousands of miles down the highway. You're on the water all, all over the country, and 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 now you've got something you can sell to your to your sponsors that's legitimate. 
So, but that, there, there was just so many things that happened to the anglers. I mean, I hate to go into them, but I'm, and I'm not going to because it's, it's too many and it's, it's the past. And, and now I think a lot of that stuff has improved with the exception of the non-endemics, you know, and I don't know, there's nobody to blame that on. It's just, it's just the way capitalism works. Man, the biggest, toughest thing we're going to have with these is keeping them short, Rick. <laughs> and not because of you, but because when you answer questions, I always have so many other questions. And I, and I do have one from our last conversation because we did broach the topic of, of the one time that you decided to take your clothes off and go fishing. And, and, and when I, and I swear to you, I rewatched the show and I never almost ever rewatched shows, but I rewatched it. And I was listening to your answers and the whole time there's a, I don't know if it's a, a bad angel on a shoulder or what. And it just keeps telling me, why didn't you ask Rick Clown if he caught him real good that day? <laughs> Do you remember catching any big ones? I don't remember uh, catching a fish to be honest. <laughs> Uh, I just remember the next day when I sat down in his chair, I couldn't hardly really sit down. That <laughs> was burning so bad. So um, no, I no, I uh, I tried to forget that, but people keep bringing it up. You know, it's uh, did you have fish naked? And I go, well, yeah. So anyway, like I said, I'm just proving today again that you got to be careful what might come out of my mouth. I don't think so. I think everything that comes out of your mouth is gold. You're a gift to our sport. And um, and I enjoy this time that we get to spend together. What What is between, last question, between now and when I see you in Texas, in my head, I envision you as the, you ever seen the movie The Days of Thunder? And and his crew chief is in the, in the barn and he's looking at the car and he is like walking down it and talking to the car and 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 visualizing the success he's going to have in this car, in my head, that's what I visualize happening with you when you're getting your boat ready. Is any of that true? It's not as true as it used to be. I mean, used to visualization was a huge part of my preparation every day because I totally believe in it. I'd studied it. I'd studied all different ways of approaching it through meditation and. And uh, visualization and the Olympic stars and how they prepared mentally. And uh, so, you know, it's, I don't do it as much, and it's my regret that I don't do it as much as I used to. Uh, because it takes time and it takes a lot. That when you're doing it at your best, you're isolating yourself from a lot of people you care about. Maybe I, there's a way to do it, do it without doing that. I, I don't know how. I mean, I used to spend hours waiting for everybody to go to bed. And then I'd spend hours and listening to tapes and then do, going through long meditations and then going through long visualizations of how this spectrum is going to come out. How do I see it happening? How do I want it to happen? Uh, rehearsing everything that can possibly happen. In, in many, many ways, I've discovered, I've got to know uh, some special forces guys and how they, and they do the same thing. They rehearse everything ahead of time. They visualized everything they're fixing to do ahead of time. 
and, uh, and, and how they want it to turn out. And that rehearsing allows you to make better and quicker decisions. And, and better is the key word because you've rehearsed all the possibilities. Okay, if I go over that bank tomorrow morning, is the wind going to be blowing or two or three boats going to beat me there? Is the water gotten muddy from the creek running now? And each, no, have an answer for each one of those ahead of time. So I don't do it as much because I, I, in my early career, I did it a lot and I know it took a lot away from my family when I did. Yeah. Maybe there's a way to do it without doing that. It's kind of like being a Buddhist monk. Do they have much family? Not that no. I know of. No. <laughs> no. And I, I don't want to liken myself to a Buddhist monk. Don't get me wrong, because they're even a lot deeper than I am. But I, I do have embraced a lot of those kind of techniques. Well, and I know I told you it was the last question, but I got I got so can we do that together? Can we visualize together, Rick? Like, what, what is involved? No, you will not. You got to have a clear mind and a clear heart. <laughs> which, which is not clear in me. Well, it's hard to do with another individual. No, no, it wasn't directed towards you personally. It's just that you really don't want another energy there. Okay. Now there are situations where you can have a guided energy of being another person. Yeah it's kind of like doing a vision quest. You don't have buddies sitting around you doing a vision quest. You're by yourself. And okay. that's, that's when you, that's when things happen. Okay. Okay. Can we maybe visualize together next time or no? No. I can talk no. about it. I can't actually do it. I mean, but, but then, then it gets, it get, you know, you know how you can get really, you can get out there. Yeah. I like going any direction you choose to go, Rick. And I thank you for uh, being here this month. And uh, we'll see you again next month. But I'll see you before then in competition. What What's the goal? 50th season. What What is your outlook on the season? To make a check. <laughs> how, many times you hear, how many times you hear that? <laughs> because the last three years... I've only lost money in, at the professional level four times in 50 years. And in my last two years, I haven't made money doing what I love to do, and that's compete. So I would love to just, but I know that that's a wish that has to be, you know, contemplated and seen. And, and I kind of know how to do that. I just can't hope, you know, it happens. It doesn't just happen, nothing just happens. You, you've got to make it happen. Always great. The one and only Mr. Rick Clun. Thank you, sir. See, I like your fur. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm ready for the season. Two incredible guests, two incredible conversations. I thank you for spending a little time with me here this week. Make sure to check out Rick Clun's episode of The Cast, airing this weekend on FS1. If you don't get FS1, you'll be able to see it on Bassmaster.com in the coming weeks. Please support little Riley Berghoff and her battle with cancer. The links are down below. And until next time, smile. Make somebody's day better. You can literally change somebody's day by simply smiling. Until next time, enjoy being, and as always, Bob Cobb, take it away. Thanks for watching. Please like, comment, and subscribe.
because Bob Cobb of the Bassmasters told you to. You hear?